0: This podcast is brought to you by Iman Publishing, Canada's leading independent legal publisher. Welcome to The Lawyer's Lounge, a criminal law-focused podcast. Wherever you are, whenever you are, The Lawyer's Lounge is always open. Come on in.
1: Hey. Lisa told me to tell you this. We are not your lawyer. The Lawyer's Lounge is an entertainment podcast and is not legal advice.
0: Welcome back to The Lawyer's Lounge and back indeed. Uh, We know it's been a little while since we dropped an episode. Uh, To be honest with you, the fall has been a pretty hectic period, as I'm sure it has been for a lot of you out there, especially in jurisdictions hit hard by COVID. Uh, For us, I mean, and certainly in my practice, I'm finding that You know, between first appearances finally happening after a summer of automatic adjournments and disclosure requests finally being returned en masse, rescheduling trials and prelims and motions that got pushed off due to COVID and fitting it all in with the existing calendar, it's just been a zoo and it's obviously a good problem to have, but it has been a really, really busy period for both of us. So that's why We have not been back with you for a little while. Sorry about that. We will try to be a bit more prompt on the next one. Uh, But I think we have a good episode for you today. We have some advocacy quick fires for your return to the courtroom. And then we're going to be joined by Frances Mahan of Mahan and Company in Vancouver. For those of you who don't know Frances, she is a fantastic criminal constitutional immigration and regulatory lawyer who has built a really special firm for herself um, in only her first 10 years of practice. Frances has um, taken some big risks and I think they've really paid off. She's been able to build a firm and a practice that is not only very successful, but also reflects her values and allows her to do the kind of work that she cares about and to surround herself with people who share her values. So I think for especially any young lawyers or newer calls out there, Francis has a lot of insight to offer on, you know, how to how to work towards becoming the lawyer that you want to be, and the kinds of strategic and principled decisions that you need to think about when you are, you know, plotting your next steps and and making sometimes the jump out the door to do your own thing. So I hope that you will enjoy Francis's interview as much as we did. Thanks so much for tuning in and enjoy the episode. All right, now we're going to jump into our advocacy quick fire. I'm going to ask you questions, you're going to ask me questions, and hopefully we'll both learn something. Awesome.
1: Are you the kind of lawyer, LJ, that interacts with the media, or do you ignore them? Um, I generally ignore the media when I'm in a particular case.
0: Um, I tend to be of the opinion that if it's before the court, I don't have much that I want to say outside of the courtroom. I know that that can vary based on different cases, but I haven't had a case where it's made sense for my clients to speak to the media about what's happening in the courtroom. I also know most of my clients don't want to be in the media, unless they already are. Um, They'd prefer that this all happen quietly. That said, I do interact with the media quite a bit to provide legal analysis and other stuff outside of my own cases. I think it can be a valuable public service to be able to explain to the public the perspective of a defendant, of how the criminal justice system actually works. And I do think that we should, as defense lawyers, try to do more of that, because there's a lot of misinformation out there and you're often getting a, per- a one-sided view on what the criminal justice system is and it's not coming from the defense perspective. But, um,
1: Yeah, I think it can be a valuable tool, but I just haven't seen it as one that works in my cases so far. How about you? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, in most of our cases, the perspective of the accused is not going to be the perspective that the public is terribly interested in, uh, in any event. And so, um, you know, the the audience isn't going to be uh, a ready and willing recipient of your message. And I think the other piece that, that, you averted to is our kind of conservative tradition. The judges don't want us talking to the press in the middle of our cases. And so, um, you know, in most cases, it's it's completely avoided. Um, and it, it makes for maybe uh, less salacious news stories. Um, but uh, I, I, I think it's a tradition in our 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 country that we can be proud of and i'm glad that we have it and um and that even the police rarely conduct press conferences um which i I think is is a huge advantage over our american Mm -hmm. counterparts who have their jury pools tainted from the very outset of uh the investigation even let alone um once charges are are laid
0: if you were giving advice to someone doing their first interview with the media, a lawyer, what would you tell them? And what have you learned over the years of interacting with the media?
1: Well, like you, my, all of my media experience is uh, really in kind of the role of commentator. So it's when i have been asked to give a, my perspective on a case that I'm not involved in. And um, the best piece of advice I've ever received uh, about that was from Evan Solomon, Uh, who was guest hosting um, Your Morning one day and told me to yell at the camera, basically, and to throw as much energy as I could at the camera. Um, And if I did that, then I would uh, be way more interesting and animated than uh, if I just used my usual demeanor. Hmm. And so I thought I'd give it a shot. I mean, it was really a no-lose situation for me. It was uh, an appearance that lasted a grand total of four minutes. And I was astounded to see that um, doing that really made a huge difference. Hmm. Uh, The the camera, I think, tends to deplete energy for some reason. And people seem to look uh, and and sound really tired when they use their normal demeanor. Uh, But if you amp it up... You're uh, much more engaging uh, to listen to and and to watch, and I found it super valuable, and I I remember it now every time I do any media spot.
0: I need to do more yelling.
1: Yelling. (laughs) Yelling. And Evan does as well, and he, I find him to be a very engaging media personality.
0: Yeah. No, I, I, the thing for me that I found interesting about doing more media is trying so hard to not fall back on the same legal jargon and nonsense that we sometimes rely on in court. It's a bad habit in court, and it's a worse habit when you're talking to the public. Yeah. Uh, I just find that it's actually a good way to figure out, do you actually understand this issue? Can you explain it to somebody without resorting to a three-step test or some legal jargon? Can you actually explain what does this mean? What's going to happen? I think it's a valuable exercise for a lot of lawyers to practice talking to normal people about
1: legal issues. Yeah, I think we should all cultivate relationships with normal people, too. <laughs> Try our best, at least. <laughs> Lisa, what do you do to calm your nerves
0: before court? I mean, I think the lame answer that people always give, which is true, is be really prepared for court. The, the most nervous you'll probably be is when you're worried, oh, God, I don't know the answer to questions that I know are likely to come up. What am I going to do if that happens? You can fix all those problems by just like having your stuff together. But for me, it's like on a more practical level, uh, breathing, not getting myself into a tizzy, you know, eating properly the day of, getting there early and having some time to just sort of shake it out, Um, and reminding myself that no one's out to get you. Like I know that the courtroom can feel intimidating for young lawyers. Sometimes it's very formal. Sometimes the media is there. Sometimes the whole family is there. It can be intimidating to know that you are the only person they're advocating for your client and you just don't want to screw it up. But at the end of the day, the judge is not out to get you. The crown's not out to get you. Everyone's just doing their job. And I try my best to be fairly humble about the whole exercise, I guess. So recognizing like, I'm always making fun of myself in court. If I flub a line that I really wanted to deliver this like, you know, heavy, weighty, awesome line in my submissions and I screw it up, I'll laugh at myself. I'll ask to start again on something. I'll say, whoops, I forgot something. I need to go back. Like, I'm not afraid of doing that because at the end of the day, it's all about making sure the client's interests are best advanced. It's not about my razzle-dazzle performance most of the time. Even in that big cross, you know, there's a moment for a laugh, or there's a moment for a pause. You don't need to be on and amazing all the time to be a really good lawyer, I think, has been one thing that's helped keep me balanced in terms of my outlook. But, you know, in the moment, breathe. If you need a break, take a break. Drink lots of water, lets you go to the bathroom a lot, which is also (laughs) great. Um, But just, you know, all the things that you would do in any other facet of your life, whether it be exam prep or the, you know, I don't know, your musical theater recital, if you're me and we're a huge loser in high school. uh...
1: Baby Lisa. (laughs) Exactly.
0: Crown Prosecutor Jill Whitkin and defense lawyer Daniel Brown offer an extensive examination of the legal processes involved in litigating sexual offenses in the much-awaited Prosecuting and Defending Sexual Offense Cases, 2nd edition. This edition contains new chapters on historical sexual offenses and cross-examination on private records. The text reflects the extensive changes to the Criminal Code brought upon by Bills C-51 and C-75 pertaining to third-party records, other sexual history, and consent. This bestseller is designed to help practitioners focus on the procedural, evidentiary, and strategic elements specific to sexual offense cases. These elements include search issues, children's evidence, cross-examination on private records, and sentencing. Revised forward by Marie Hennin, contributions from Cecilia Hagerman, Megan Cunningham, Don Way, Adam Weisberg, and Colleen McEwen. To learn more and order your copy today, visit imond.ca slash LLP SO2. For our listeners, Imond is offering 10% off. Just visit Emond.ca slash LLP SO2. And enter code Lawyers Lounge at checkout. We are joined today by Frances Mann, uh, who is a criminal and immigration litigator in Vancouver. Uh, she is the principal at Mahan and Company, uh, leading litigation boutique in Vancouver, and we're very grateful to have her joining us today. So, welcome, Frances. Thank you so much for having me. How is everything going out in BC right now? Well, it's raining today. I'm sure you're shocked to
2: hear that. We Very are shocked. Into <laughs> the rain season or mushy leaf season as I like to call it. Um, but yeah, things are okay here. Uh, I think compared to Ontario, we're doing a little bit better pandemic wise. And even though our numbers have gone up, it feels like it's under control. So, you know,
0: thriving, surviving, trying to anyway. I think you mentioned that you're in the middle of a lengthy trial matter right now. I'm just curious, are those things happening in person or are you doing that uh, virtually right now?
2: Uh, Our trial is happening in person so it's a first degree murder trial and uh, because of that it would be very very difficult to do it remotely. Uh, I represent uh, one fellow and then he has a co-accused as well. The co-accused actually did apply to do his trial remotely by video from the jail but uh, that application was denied.
0: Okay gotcha. Well thanks so much for taking time in the middle of a lengthy and complicated trial to speak to us. Um, I've been following your career and obviously I have, I think we have some sort of friends in common, so I know of you, but for those who are listening that don't know you, can you tell me a little bit about uh, your career up to now and how you got to a place where your name is uh, top billing on the door of a great law firm in Vancouver?
2: Sure. So, uh, so I'm relatively early on in my career, I was called in Ontario in 2014 and I went to law school in Ontario at Osgoode. And I, I think it's like for many people, my career has been a combination of luck and a lot of really hard and <laughs> dedicated <laughs> work. And, uh, you know, I hate to say that I have been lucky in some regard because I think so much of it has come out through Uh, my own work, but, um, you know, there's certain things that happen through happenstance and so that's always nice. Uh, But I, when I was in law school, I, uh, and I really owe so much of my career to this, but I worked with Professor Alan Young Uh uh, throughout most of law school. And I worked with him on the Bedford case and on the Innocence Project and a bunch of other kind of weird and wonderful things. And through that work and through my relationship with Professor Young, I was able to launch my career in a really interesting way and had exposure to work that not a lot of young lawyers or law students get exposed to. So uh, after that, I articled with, Marlis Edwards at Goldblatt Partners in Toronto. And for those of you who don't know, Marlis is a, an amazing human, an amazing lawyer, and uh, I could not have asked for a better mentor and Marlis also has a very non-traditional practice. And because of that, I was, again, exposed to doing many, many different things that uh, wouldn't form part of a normal criminal defense practice, although fell loosely under that rubric. So, so from the beginning, I have never had a very typical practice. And I've worked with these people who've really forged their own path. And that has really inspired me to do the same thing. So when I made the decision to come out to Vancouver in 2016, uh, I was in my third year. And then uh, I was working for David Martin out here, who's a well-known criminal defense lawyer. And uh, David and I worked very, very well together. But uh, after about six months, I realized that I wasn't really interested in being somebody's associate anymore (laughs) and was really wanting to do my own thing. And having my own practice or my own firm had been a long-term goal of mine but uh had been more of like a 10-year plan as a three-year plan but uh but it just it was so funny it was just like one of those decisions that i made Uh, I don't want to say it was like out of nowhere, but I like went from being associate to like a week later quitting my job (laughs) and then (laughs) starting an exit plan with David, who was enormously supportive to me and, uh, you know, really, really helped me get going.
0: Okay. So Uh, let's, let's stop there for a second because I have some questions because I know a lot (laughs) of lawyers in their first, you know, five to 10 years of practice who are reaching that, that kind of that tipping point where they're thinking, okay, I like the person I work for, but I really want to have my own criminal practice. I think that's the future of what, I mean, in the criminal defense averse, that's pretty much the model, right? Eventually you go hang your own shingle and you do your own thing, or you find a friend and you have a pro, like a law firm. But a lot of people ask me, like, how, how do you actually do that? And it's really great when you have a supportive principal, like David, it sounds like, was, who helps you transition a bit. But... Walk us through what that decision-making process was like, what kind of logistics did you have to think through? Were you bringing clients with you? Like, how, did, how does that work for anyone who's thinking, okay, I want to do this too, but I have no idea where to start because I'm used to someone saying, here you go, Bob, here's your case for the week, and you go and you work on the cases you've been given. How do you, how do you build and make that next step? Well, uh, it was a reckless decision
2: a bit in my opinion, <laughs> because I had only been in Vancouver for like working in Vancouver for about six months at that point. And though, although I had uh, made some really great connections out here, I really wasn't embedded in the legal community in the way that I had been in Toronto, for example, when I left. And so uh, so looking back on it now, <laughs> it was a really... Um, I don't, yeah, but it was a decision that I had to make. And I think, like, for those of people out there who know me, know that uh, I really have a practice of looking deep in my heart and saying, like, is this right for me, what I'm doing right now? And if the answer to that is no, it's uh, identifying what I really need to be happy in my life and my work, and then putting that into motion really quickly. And I think like when I was a law student and I certainly see a lot of young lawyers and law students feeling this way is that there's a really, um, clear idea or picture of like what a lawyer looks like or what a law practice looks like. And, and you kind of, you know, Trundle down this path forever until you get there. And I think it's what's really important, though, is to actually, you know, look critically at what you're doing and decide if that is truly the path that you want to be on. And if it's not, then do something else because you're really not going to be happy. This work is enormously difficult and you've got to do it in a way that you're passionate about and that makes you feel good and, you know, helping people if that's what you want to do. So, um, so I kind of had one of those moments in the summer of 2016 of thinking, okay, well, this is good. I'm making decent money. I, you know, I really loved working with David. We were doing these great files, but uh, ultimately I knew I needed to go out on my own in order to continue being happy in the practice of law. So that was my decision-making process. I did not do things like, "How will I have clients?" or "How will I have make my money?" That kind of came later, and um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that as an approach. But that is what I did. So, uh, so when I was transitioning out with David, there was a couple of files that um, I had been working on him with, and so uh, part of the way in which he supported me, and he said, "Hey, you know, you go do your own thing, but keep working with me on." these two files. Um, You can bill me for your time. And then that, so that was nice. That was a little bit of a cushion to move forward as I slowly was able to build up the rest of my practice. So it was, yeah, it was kind of like after I had left and then I was like sitting in my house being like, okay, now (laughs) what is the next move? (laughs) What do I do? And I didn't at that point even really think that I would be um, the owner of a law firm and having associates and staff like a couple of years down the road. It was very much a solo project at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, I was very focused on getting office space, uh, as I'm sure the criminal lawyers out there appreciate, Having a place to meet your clients that is not your house
0: is a really good thing. So, uh, for a number and- of reasons, it seems like a sound <laughs> plan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, you know,
2: as I get, we can all appreciate after the last seven months that working at home can be just a really exhausting thing. And so, I really wanted to separate my home life from my work life. So, um, yeah, so I looked for uh, an office space in Vancouver. I found like a very small 300 square foot office that had a pretty reasonable rent and was in a Gastown here. Um, the one piece of advice that I received and I would absolutely recommend to everybody is to keep your overhead as low as possible when you're first starting out, because that will give you the freedom and flexibility to, um, to do the kind of work that you want to do and not be really stressed about Uh, money that's coming in. Um, I should say too, uh, and one thing I didn't mention, but a factor in me making this decision was that um, like I don't have kids or a mortgage and I had also finished paying off my student debt before I left Toronto. So um, without those things in place, I don't think this would have been as easy of a decision to make, but I had very little uh, other financial pressure on me. And I also have a very low cost of living generally. Okay. So um, so because of that, it gave me a lot of flexibility to do what I wanted.
0: So you had a bit more risk appetite at that point and thought, well, you know, if it takes a while to get going, you can you can make it work on not that much as you build it up.
2: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I just I, I think it's important to say that because had I been carrying the debt that I left yep. law school with, that would not have been a decision I probably could have made. So I just I wouldn't want people out there sitting there listening to this feeling like, oh, well, I must not you know have it what it takes to start my own practice. If really what you're facing is financial pressure, that's a really real thing. And it's important to be mindful of that. So that was definitely an important component of this. and. And I think you know, realizing that I just wasn't going to be making a lot of money and then being okay with that at the beginning was really important too and and like I said, I can do that because I have a very low cost of living and i don't uh, I've tried not to give in to the lifestyle inflation <laughs> that uh, happens to lawyers sometimes so um so then, after that, uh, the other piece of advice that I got, which I would definitely um, recommend to everybody is to hire an accountant uh, and bookkeeper right away don't do that on your own i am a lawyer i'm not an accountant <laughs> for a bookkeeper and you know as much as you can um Hire other people to do non-law tasks for you, the better it will be for you and ultimately the most profitable. So, uh, so that was the first person that I brought on. Um, I have she's still my accountant. She's fantastic. Thank you, Mindy, for helping me with all of these things. And uh, she, she works remotely. Um, we have cloud storage and she accesses all my accounting files that way and does everything for me in that regard. So that was made things much, much easier for me and, you uh, made my last trust audit with the law society which is so yeah <laughs>
0: that was one of the scarier things for me was uh, realizing that those services cost money and some people said you can do it all yourself it's easy you'll be fine and I I very quickly had a similar realization which was that I am one absolutely terrible at all of those things and uh, and two it just frees you up to be able to do the thing that you're actually good at which is practice law and I you know I think it would be much more stressful without the financial guidance of someone who's actually a professional in those spaces to help you keep the ship on the right path so that is good advice to share with everybody um, so you hired yeah. an accountant you've got office space you've mentioned that you didn't have huge financial constraints in the rest of your life so you could take a bit of a risk but you're also new to Vancouver's legal community how do you build the connections or how do you start building your client base and what guided that process for you
2: well, I am uh, a pretty social person, as I'm sure you know, and uh i've really uh because I love all of the people and the lawyers in my life it's like really easy for me to stay connected to them. I've stayed really connected to my uh, community of lawyers and friends in Toronto as well um, and i reached out to a lot of people in those early days just to give them the heads up that yeah i'm starting my own thing this is what i'm doing uh i started practicing immigration and refugee law at that time too which is not something that i had done before so uh so i did a lot of things like go to you know go to immigration conferences go to the cba section meetups like once a month and just really put myself out there to meet people Uh, And it, you know, it happened before too long. And the one really amazing thing about the criminal bar and the immigration bar is that folks are really, really dedicated to helping young lawyers and each other generally. So It was very easy for me to pick up the phone or send an email or have a coffee date with folks, and uh, everybody was very supportive of what I was doing. So, the advice I would offer is just um, stay connected to the people you already have connections with, and then really focus on building connections with the people uh, who are doing the kind of work that you're interested in. Like, just go up to them and talk to them, (laughs) send them an email. They won't get mad at you. I have people email me all the time time. And I always really appreciate it. And I don't always have time to meet up in person. But uh, it's, you know, I always welcome people reaching out in that way. And I have never ever had somebody turn me down when I have reached out to them.
0: Um, and that's great advice. I mean, I think I have found that as well. I mean, it, it, it's such a supportive community. And one of the nice things about doing this podcast is getting to talk to people and everyone's always so excited to sort of share their experiences and want to give back to the community. So I think we are very lucky to be members of such a friendly section of the bar in many ways. Um, And you've obviously been able to grow your practice pretty quickly. I mean, we're talking about on your own, figuring out where your initial clients come from to now. I know you have a couple associates, I think, who work for you. When do you hit that tipping point where you start realizing I've built a practice and I have enough workflow and not just I'm way too busy right now, which I think is a problem people have when they're new in having a firm, which is I'm really busy right now, but I don't have the confidence or the certainty that I'll be really busy for the next 12 months such that hiring someone makes sense. When did you hit that tipping point And how did you evaluate that decision? I, I was about a year and a
2: half in and by that point, I was way too busy. Right. And <laughs> uh, it like my practice grew really, really quickly. And I was having people, you know, contact me, uh, wanting me to take on their files and being in a position where I would have to say no, and then saying, well, I will wait then for you to be able to help me. And that, I mean, that was a really wonderful feeling. And it was what reinforced to me that whatever I was doing, I was doing it right. <laughs> and uh, But I knew that it wasn't going to be sustainable over the long term. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
2: our practice is really draining, as you know, and uh, this is very, very hard work that we do. Um, we work with people experiencing trauma and that trauma really rubs off on us and the hours can be quite grueling and, you know, all of that. So. I was realizing that I would be burnt out in the next couple of months if I didn't figure out a plan forward. So I did a couple of things. Um, I hired a legal assistant and I hadn't had one up until that point. And so I hired somebody uh, part time to work for me about 15 to 20 hours a week, mostly remotely. Uh, to do the intake side of the practice because I found Mm -hmm. I was like a lot of my time is really spent uh, responding to inquiries. Um, kind of weeding out cases that I could take or was interested in taking from those, you know, people who wanted me to like draft a will or just something that I that I don't do or, or whatever. Right. And so, I mean, that is a very, very time consuming part. And it's a really important part, but um, I, it was just, it's like non-billable stuff that I didn't mm-hmm. need to be doing. You know, I'd be putting together all my own books and filing, like it was just <laughs> really time consuming. So, uh, so I hired my legal assistant then and that really, Really changed things. And now uh, V is running my office and is working full-time and is absolutely instrumental to my practice. Um, But then it hit the point where I just like I just had too much work. And I was either like, okay, I need to stop growing um, and really hit the brakes on what I'm doing, or I can hire somebody and then continue to grow things a little bit. So uh, I reached out to a talented young uh, articling student that I knew uh, who was articling at a local immigration firm. And uh, we had met through, I think, Oh yeah, so this is my associate Aiden. So Aiden had reached out to me actually like six months prior just to like have a coffee and chat and I was really impressed with them and their thoughtfulness and uh, love of the work they were doing and really like passion for immigration law in particular and so uh, so when I was thinking okay I need somebody like who's like really keen and kind of just starting out to take on some of the smaller files that I just wasn't having time for so I could focus on the stuff that I wanted to be doing so I reached out to Aiden when they were um, still articling. Uh, we sat down and had a chat and I basically offered them a job at that point <laughs> to start at the end of their articles. Um, I also knew that I was going to be starting a murder trial in like a couple of months after that. And I just like, I had to figure something out. It just wasn't gonna be sustainable. So, um, so Aiden started with me. And then around that same time, uh, I met Uh, A really lovely, lovely young lawyer named Kirat, who's my other associate, (laughs) and she uh, was just finishing her articles as well uh, with a lawyer I had been working very closely with. And Carrot uh, was just another person who just impressed me so much uh, with her intelligence and dedication and all of that. And uh, she was really wanting to work somewhere that accorded with her own values and would allow her to grow in the way that she wanted. And it just, I, I had not been intending on hiring a second associate, but it just seemed like too good of an opportunity and somebody that I didn't want to lose. So, so I off, also offered Carrot a job, <laughs> like around the same time that Aiden started, Uh, and then she started with me last September. And uh, yeah, and so it's kind of gone from there. Um, I have not regretted those decisions at all. It's been uh, so amazing seeing these young lawyers kind of grow and feel confident and develop those skills and uh, being a part of that has just been really fantastic for me.
0: It sounds like your hiring decisions and the way that you've shaped your practice as well. You're, I mean, we talk about things in like bullshit, like fit, uh, you know, when you talk about big firms or whatever, but I mean, it sounds like creating a certain culture and having people that share your values and want to pursue similar goals or pursue their own goals in a way that's consistent with your own has been something that has informed the way you've built the team around you. How important is that to you personally? And how much do you think that matters to building the law firm that, I mean, you either want to work at or have if you're someone who's looking to open a firm?
2: Uh, It's critical. And I, um, you know, As a queer person in particular, I, you know, I really recognize how limited opportunities can be uh, within larger law firm structures, Um, or even if those opportunities are there, how difficult it can be for folks who don't necessarily fit into the norm uh, to be able to thrive in those structures. And so, Uh, you know, part of doing my own thing was creating the kind of place that I wanted to work at in the long term, and that I would hope would allow other people to really thrive in that place. And so um, so I think it's Absolutely critical to really shape your firm around your own values and to ensure that the people that you're working with um, share those values with you because um, that's what's going to allow you to work together really closely as a team and work well together as a team. So, we you know we're a very social justice oriented practice, mm-hmm. and it's um, that is the kind of defining feature of all of us. And it was uh, it was a feature in why I hired my legal assistant to V too. It was the same thing like they had uh, an abundance of experience in working with marginalized communities, and was somebody that I really trusted to be able to talk to the vulnerable folks who were calling me to see if I could be their lawyer. And so you know V also brings like a sensitivity and a really solid understanding of these issues to the work. So that's, you know, that's something that we all share and we all really enjoy. Um, We like, (laughs) we have monthly staff meetings, which, uh, are probably unlike any staff meeting that has <laughs> been said at any law firm. So um, we always do a at the beginning and uh, we spend a really long time like talking about how we're really doing and feeling um, and then you know dealing with like practical components as well and then Uh, And then one of us will lead uh, a discussion for reflection as well. And it sometimes can involve a a reading um, and then we all reflect on it together. Uh, So last week or two weeks ago, we had our meeting and um, we did a reading on not using ableist language. And so we all uh, took turns reading from uh, this article and then uh, spent like 20 minutes after that sort of talking about how we felt about that and how we can put some of those things into practice. And so, um, so not, you know, necessarily typical things for a law firm, but it makes me feel really good about what we're doing. And it means that we all keep growing and stay reflective. So,
0: yeah. Now that I mean one thing that I mean, I have admired from across the country about what it seems like you're building at your law firm, is it you're obviously able to grow your business and it seems like your business is doing well. I mean, you're, I, I, I'm not going to ask about your bottom line, but you know, it it looks like you're growing and you're doing really well, but you're also not having to sacrifice the part of many of us feel passionately about in this particular part of the law, which is sort of the advocacy piece. And I don't just mean formal courtroom advocacy, but also being advocates for causes and for groups of people that we want to represent and give voices to marginalized people. Um, I know a lot of young lawyers go into criminal defense work or or refugee and immigration work or any other social justice oriented part of the law, because they care about the issues. And then you start thinking about opening a business. And now you're being told, well, you know, what's your, what's your overhead like, get an accountant, think about the business. And it can feel sometimes like there's a tension between, you know, business me and uh, advocate me. Uh, How have you found You've been able do you think that there can there needs to be attention there and how have you dealt with balancing those considerations as you grow your your practice i don't know if i would call it attention
2: i think it's more of an opportunity i don't i don't feel that my my values or my identity has limited me except when i have you know, like I've experienced homophobia and sexism in the legal profession, mm-hmm. like anybody else who's a queer woman in this profession, but um, but I have always done the best and by best, I mean, um, both like well on a personal level, but also financially, when I have just like relentlessly believed in myself and put myself out there. So Um, Aligning myself with causes that I really um, believe in and stand up for. That has been beneficial to me on a personal level, but it's also brought business through the door and, you know, and I don't mean to be crass when I say that, but a lot of that work can be really profile raising. And it's not, that's not why I do it, but it has had that effect Um, because, you know, putting yourself really out there for these causes, it gets the attention of other people people know who you are. A lot of the work that I've done because there are causes that I really believe in um, has also been uh, quite high profile at the same time. And so uh, so it's the kind of work that uh, makes its rounds uh, like on social media and in the, in the newspaper and in other forms of media and, uh, and also through word of mouth. And so, uh, and because of that, uh, even though perhaps that work was not paying or very low paying, usually non-paying, right. <laughs> um, but it has uh, every single time, uh, Uh, led to me getting uh, paying clients come in Mm. and so um, you know I never enter these things with that as the end goal that's not why I do it Um, but that has definitely been the result and so Um, I think like the more that I put myself out there and the more that I'm just like very honest about who I am, the more that I attract like minded people who want to do business with me, whether that's um, my associates or my legal assistant or my clients uh, or other lawyers who want to refer me work. It has all been uh, of a benefit to me uh, just to really be myself and to, as I said, just relentlessly pursue what it is I actually want to do with my life. I think I would be much worse off if I was trying to force myself into um, some way of practice or way of being that didn't accord with who I am. So yeah, so I don't see those things as attention but an opportunity.
0: No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then in terms of practice areas and the way, I mean, I, one thing that I like about having a law firm that's within your control and being in the loose criminal dis- defense regulatory space is it feels like it's this magical grab bag where you can choose your own adventure to a certain extent and you can take on things in different areas. I mean, my, I always say, like, I just defend people who have been accused of things in sort of, you, you pick a forum, someone said you did something wrong. I can help you with that. And it's sort of nice to be able to gradually grow into different spaces that you find enjoyable. I know that you have a wide variety of sort of regulatory as well as immigration work you do, in addition to obviously quite high level criminal defense work. How did you grow your practice in those ways? And have you found it scary sometimes to take to jump into a new field or subject area where you don't have experience and take on clients? And how did you deal with sort of any nerves that you feel moving into a new kind of tribunal or space or practice area. Oh, it was scary. (laughs) Um, I, you know, I say this all the time, but I feel like
2: every time I do something, it's I'm doing something for the very first time, like, I don't know why I just never have the same kind of case twice or the same kind of application twice. And so I perpetually have this feeling of um, learning, like I'm doing something for the first time. So I think that's a good thing overall, but it is really scary. Uh, yeah, so when I, you know, I felt very comfortable practicing criminal law and then um, when I decided I wanted to do immigration and refugee law, I had been working very, very loosely within that field prior to that. So mm-hmm. so I had a bit of background. Um, when I worked with Marlis, uh, we worked on a national security certificate case. Mm-hmm. Uh, together that had been going on for her for a very long time and then I kind of came in at the last three years of that so that that introduced me to the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act albeit in this very uh, narrow and strange (laughs) way and then uh, and then when I was working for David I was uh, assisting him and working with Lauren Waldman as well on um, a very complex refugee file which is still going on in fact and uh and i think the the unusual thing about my immigration practice is, is that it's, as you said, I'm responding to allegations in those forums. Mm-hmm. Um, I do do some straightforward, uh, refugee work. Like somebody is experiencing persecution comes to Canada. I represent them. They become a refugee. Everybody's happy. <laughs> so, uh, but the, for the most part it's responding to allegations. So in the refugee context, um, people can be denied asylum if they're, uh, if it's proven uh, that there are reasons to consider that they have committed a serious non-political crime, as the language goes. Uh, so it's about responding to those allegations and asserting at the same time that they are a bona fide of refugee. And then in the immigration side of things, uh, people can be inadmissible to Canada, um, again, for engaging in criminality. So uh, so most of my work in that realm uh, engages criminal law in pretty significant ways Uh Uh, and I think the advantage for me is that coming from a criminal practice uh, responding to allegations is what I do right and uh, and being a defense lawyer you have a really strong sense of uh, what people's rights are both under the charter and procedural rights those rights don't always translate and almost never translate (laughs) Into the immigration and refugee board, but um, but I think starting from that point of being like my client is entitled to X, Y, or Z um, allows you to push the envelope a little bit further and um, and have expectations that while they may not be met, um, it will get you a little bit farther than you might otherwise come. So I've always seen my criminal practice as being a huge advantage to me in those realms, and then. The reverse of that is also true. Um, immigration considerations are always uh, front and center for me on a criminal file, um, and we, uh, at my firm, we often represent people in both settings as well, which is, you know, great value for our clients because they don't need to hire two different lawyers and there's just, you know, one of us looking holistically at their entire situation. So. Um, But yeah, I mean, there was a lot to learn once I started practicing uh, more fully within immigration and refugee law, but I had the advantage of working with um, some really talented lawyers like Lauren Waldman. Uh, And then again, I just, you know, I went to like every conference and just read a lot and called people up constantly. Saying, I don't know what I'm doing, please help me. I mean, I do that all the time anyway. (laughs) And I think that, like, part of being a good lawyer is like doing that, saying, Oh, hey, I saw that you did uh, this Garofoli application, like, can we talk about it? Whatever. Like, that's,
1: um,
2: I don't think you should ever stop doing that. So, my approach really hasn't been that different, I guess.
0: Makes sense. All right. Well, I've kept you from PrEP for a long time, but I do think, you know, it being 2020 and the world being on fire, I would be, (laughs) we can't end this discussion without talking about our good friend COVID. Uh, How have you dealt with the past few months from a practice perspective? Um, I have found it to be a good experience in finding sort of a Zen about (laughs) Not letting things worry me too much and just deciding this is going to be a weird, not particularly profitable time in some some months and just kind of finding my, my peace with everything being on fire at all times. But uh, how, have, how have you weathered this time and has it been tough? Uh, and any advice you can share for people if we, especially for those of us in places that looks like we are hunkering down for a nice long winter of home time, uh, any advice you want to share or things you've learned over the past few months?
2: uh well uh one thing that we were very lucky for was that um we were already my and by we i mean my firm was already set up to work remotely uh already so there was actually almost nothing that needed to be done on the day that i sent everybody home which was like march 17th or something like that um we closed down pretty early on uh and everybody else in my life was like, oh, you're (laughs) overreacting, it's going to be fine. And then like two days later, everybody else shut down too. So um, it was, uh, I think that one of the biggest challenges was keeping everybody in my office really connected. Um, We all, we actually had quite a bit of work to do. Um, I, you know, I was prepping for this murder trial that I'm in right now. Um, so there was plenty to keep us busy and billing and all that good stuff. Uh, it was, you know, keeping that unity in our team was a bit more challenging. And I think all of us have dealt with some pretty extreme isolation mm-hmm. in the last several months. So I think that was the biggest challenge. Um, we, you know, we had a lot of kind of weekly Zoom meetings with all of us and we talked on the phone all the time, but it just, it really didn't replace that in-person walking down the hall to chat with your colleague or get their advice on something. Um, And then we were fortunate enough that the situation in uh, BC really improved uh, quite early on. So we actually reopened at the end of May. Oh, nice. Uh, But yeah, I mean, business has been hard. I mean, with courts shutting down the borders, and the IRB like just uh, it was like everybody at the IRB IRB and IRCC just like closed their doors and stopped answering the phone for several months it was just really strange Um, so we didn't have a lot of new work coming in so we had a lot of work that we had already had that was continuing that was good Um, but it was definitely very scary to see that okay we're not getting the same like people calling every day to retain us because and I knew that in the short term, it wouldn't affect us, but that I would start really feeling that around the end of the summer. And, uh, and I did. Um, Initially, I wasn't eligible for a dime of any federal funding. And so that um, was pretty rough. Yeah. Uh, But we weathered through it. And then uh, actually early in September, uh, I did end up getting some funding from the government. Mm -hmm. Which was really helpful and it was really necessary at that particular moment because um, that's when I started feeling the, the loss of a bunch of new clients coming in. Yeah. Uh, today is sitting here, like everything is pretty good. Like, I, um, we're kind of back to where we were in early March, um, especially now that I'm back in trial. Things are feeling much more normal yeah. again. It will never ever feel like it did before. And on a Personal level, I've kind of let go of the past and I don't need to get back there because that's not a thing that can happen. I also don't know what's going to happen in the future. <laughs> and I try not to think about it too much beyond the necessary life planning that I need to do. But um, it has made me very appreciative of the present moment in a way that I have never felt. I have reached a level <laughs> of zen. not know was possible and a level of gratitude for the little day-to-day things in my life and so that has actually been uh quite lovely
0: well uh what what do you know we're going to end on a positive message in 2020 (laughs) in an interview about the law and life so who knew we could get to this place Francis? thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today and good luck with your trial thanks so much lisa it's the winner of the 2020 Hugh Lawford Award for Excellence in Legal Publishing. LGBTQ2 Law, Practice Issues and Analysis, the first text of its kind, draws on the expertise and experience of a diverse author team. The text provides practitioners with a deep understanding of how their clients' identities affect their interactions with the Canadian legal landscape. General Editor, Joanna Radboard. A pioneer in advancing lgbtq2 rights in canada assembles a remarkable team of over 50 expert contributors consisting of lawyers academics and activists a particular focus is put on the challenges faced within criminal law and the text also addresses the experiences of indigenous and racialized members of the lgbtq2 plus community learn more and order your copy at emond.ca Dash LGBTQ. For our listeners, Eman is offering ten percent off. Just visit imon.ca/llp-LGBTQ and enter code Lawyers Lounge at checkout. Thank you again to Francis Mahon for joining us today as a guest on the podcast. The Lawyer's Lounge is produced, engineered, and edited by Alex Ross of Never
1: Sleeps Network, directed and published by Danan Hawes, and marketing by Jordan Bloom.
0: My name is Paul Emond. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lawyer's Lounge. We at Emon Publishing are committed to providing best-in-class criminal law content, including our award-winning criminal law series, edited by Brian Greenspan and Justice Rondinelli, New initiatives like the Lawyer's Lounge podcast, as well as our emond exam prep resources and criminal law casebooks for law students.